Would you like to embrace new technologies, harness 21st century connectivity, and become a powerful nurse innovator and thought leader? Let's talk all about it with Ohio State University School of Nursing Chief Innovation Officer Tim Raderstorf, right here on episode 257 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I love having you along for the ride. Whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months or years, as always, thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, technology, and beyond. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is brought to you by Incredible Health, where hospitals apply to nurses instead of the other way around. You can create a profile in about three minutes and then sit back and wait as the interview requests come to you. With Incredible Health, nurses get hired three times faster than the usual application and hiring process. Simply go to IncredibleHealth.com forward slash Nurse Keith to set up your profile and find your next job. And did you know that Nurse Keith Coaching is your one-stop shop for all things related to your career? That's right, I offer individualized coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals around the world. And if you mention the show, you'll get 10% off your first coaching package. Email me today at keith at nursekeith.com and we'll schedule a complimentary consult to explore how coaching can help you have the most satisfying life and career possible. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, you can follow along at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 257. Today, as I mentioned, we're welcoming friend of the pod, Tim Raderstorf, who happens to be the chief innovation officer of the Ohio State University School of Nursing. And Tim, I want to welcome you and jump right into the deep end. What has the interconnectivity, speed of advancement, and innovative spirit of the early 21st century done for nurses in healthcare? Yeah. So, uh, giving you guys a little peek behind the curtain here. So Keith and I were, were, were talking before the episode and I had made a joke about um, the 17 and a half year timeline it takes for healthcare research to get to the bedside. And uh, we know that because of that and because of a variety of other reasons, uh, regulatory and, and um, you know, the hierarchy of healthcare, uh, that things take a long time to happen. And we, but, but what, what led us into this conversation was talking about how exciting it is right now to be in this innovation space in healthcare, particularly in the field of nursing, um, where it's new. Uh, there are people who are doing unheard of things that we thought may be um, not, not necessarily out of scope of nursing, but just things we hadn't considered to be part of the practice. And here we are now with not just one or two examples of people doing this, but people all over the world engaging. And uh, I made a joke that said, I, I think we're finally at the point where uh, we've hit that 17 and a half year time lag and, and people are starting to recognize it's like the, the connectivity that the internet brought us in 2000, 2002 is now reaching far and wide into the healthcare profession. We're drinking the Kool-Aid and we're sharing the great things that we're doing with each other uh, in a way that we never have before. So it's so exciting to to be able to be part of that, um, to be able to talk with, with you, Keith, today about uh, the great things that are going on, not just at Ohio State, but across the country and in the world. Um, and just the people people's willingness right now to engage and share ideas and try new things. It's at a level I've never seen before. Now, you said a few things there that, that piqued my curiosity. One, I think we're beyond drinking the Kool-Aid, Tim. I think we're doing like either an IV drip or an IV push. Um, <laughs> yep. I think I get an IV push of the Kool-Aid every day. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, you also mentioned 17 and a half years. Where does that figure come from in terms of innovation making it to the bedside? What does that mm-hmm. mean to you? Yeah. So that this is specific to healthcare research, and I and I can send you the link to put in the show notes. But there's a, a seminal study that was done, I think maybe even ten years ago now, that showcased um, that it took on average seventeen and a half years from the publication of healthcare research, so not not the start of it, but the publication of research, okay. to make it to the bedside. The more alarming factor, though, 
is that only 14% of healthcare research actually makes it to the bedside. So <laughs> oh my God. Um, okay. that, that doesn't mean that that other 86% isn't advancing the science, which it, it certainly is, and it is helping people maybe make the next discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about the, the speed of healthcare in the future, if you're researching something today with the, with the mind of how is this going to impact practice in 17 years, I think that's a near impossible feat for most researchers to do because the future has never been more uncertain because it's growing so quickly. I don't mean that in an alarmist, scary way. I think the future is, is going to be beautiful and wonderful. And uh, I think we're going to be doing things that we've never been able to do before mm-hmm. to make the world a better place. Um, but to be able to anticipate how what we're researching or developing today can incorporate into that rapidly changing world uh, is is very challenging. So you have to design for today and tomorrow uh, and really get implementing now so that you can be part of the incremental evolution. I, I don't believe there's going to be a lot of disruptive innovation in healthcare because healthcare is so behavior-based. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anything that's really strongly behavior-based is, is really hard to go from A to D. You got to go A, B, C, D to showcase the value and, and create the what's in it for me for clinicians and, and people to, to make those changes. Um, but it's going to happen really quickly. And uh, we need to be able to, to uh, see that value uh, and play alongside with it. I, I don't think we're getting replaced by robots in any sense of the imagination. So I don't think there's any fear in um, technology displacing the nurse, but the nurse is going to be engaging with technology in new ways. And, um, and I think that, you know, to, to bring it back to the 17 year gap, we're, we're just going to have to be able to adapt much quicker and shorten that timeline uh, to showcase our resiliency and our ability to, to adapt quickly. Wow. Well said. Now, right. The 17 years makes sense to me in terms of, you know, my brother works for a biotech in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and he, he does very advanced research and it's mostly drug discovery. So I understand why drug discovery takes so long, right? You have to develop the molecules or the compounds and then you have to, you know, test it in vitro and then you test it in animals and then you go to human studies and then it fails and you go back to the drawing board and you know, so that's important and developing medications and and chemotherapy and things like that, you've got to really take your time. Now, when we talk about different kinds of innovation, like mm-hmm. nurses developing products that come to prototype and then get put on the market mm-hmm. or um, any other type of innovation that's happening, I would hope that that sort of stuff doesn't take on average 17 and a half years because it's not necessarily research in the, the way we think about like pharmaceutical research. Mm-hmm. But what's your experience, especially as you're the head of the Ohio State University Innovation Studio, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And we'll talk about the innovation studio. So when someone wants to innovate and develop like a physical product, it it appears to me, and I've had a number of people on the show now who have developed physical products or are in the process of doing so, that that is a faster track process because it's coming from the clinician often who understands the bedside. So what's happening in that world where we're actually innovating and creating tangible products that actually do something for us? Yeah. So when you think about the product creation, it certainly can happen faster and it can take just as long. It, it, really, a lot of it depends on the regulatory side for, for uh, device creation. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a whole wormhole that we'll leave for another discussion. But okay. um, Really, you know, you need to understand what level of FDA clearance your product may need if it's going to be something that's going to be put in a human being or on a human being. There's, there's different levels, and, and uh, I'd encourage you to, to do a little bit of research on that. Most health systems or large health systems have a technology transfer office who can give you some legal advice as to what that's going to look like. Uh, so if that's something that's interesting to you, I'd, I'd encourage you to look into it. Uh, but as we look to bringing these ideas to life. Uh, we have a, a couple wonderful examples. And I don't know if, if now is a good time to, to talk about the Innovation Studio first so people aren't, aren't confused about what that is or if, if you'd like a couple examples of, of timelines. Because um, I'm, I'm a living, breathing 
example of, for my startup of something taking longer than it should or could. Then I have examples of, of things coming to the innovation studio that are happening much faster than they should. Okay. Well, first, let's give a down and dirty description of the innovation studio at Ohio State University. Yeah. And then let's talk about some things you're seeing coming through the studio mm-hmm. and examples of what I was just asking about. So let's, let's start with, the, with OSU mm-hmm. Innovation Studio. Yeah, so we've been very fortunate at the Ohio State University to receive uh, a large gift from Gary and Connie Sharp, two of our alumni, to change the culture of innovation at Ohio State. But I'm a big believer, if you haven't read the book Loon Shots by Safi Bacal, it's a phenomenal book that talks about the structure of innovation. You know, th- this his work really closely parallels the work that we've been doing at Ohio State. So it's always nice to to find a book that says, "Hey, what you're doing is the right thing." Um, but um, with, with that with that attempt to change the culture of innovation, uh, you you hear people say all the time, "Culture eats strategy for for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner." Uh, but what what Safi Bacall says and what what we found as well is that if culture does eat strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, structure is eating them all for dessert. Hmm. So you have to have the proper structure in place to build a culture of innovation. And when we talk about our structure of innovation, you need to provide two things. um, And that is your uh, permission to innovate and your validation that ideas are worth pursuing. Hmm. So we've we've built a structure at Ohio State called the Innovation Studio. It's now two spaces, but I'll, I'll tell you about the original one because that's kind of our bread and butter. Um, it's a movable maker space. It's a 16 by 16 cubicle that has 3D printers and laser cutters and all the types of manufacturing components that you can think of to develop a rough prototype for an idea. Um, and we put this 16 by 16 cubicle in high traffic locations across campus. So when the, we're in the lobby of our hospital or we're in the lobby of our medical college or we're in the lobby of our design school all over campus, and we, we are very um, pensive of where we place this space because what we want is the convergence of new people to create new ideas. Mm. Um, and... So that's kind of how we provide the permission. We say, you know, here is a physical space. It acts as the starting line. We hear people say all the time, whether it's on your podcast, at the university or wherever, that they have great ideas. They just don't know where to begin. This innovation studio acts as the physical starting line for where you go when you want to get your ideas off the ground. So that's how permission comes into play. The other key component I talked about that was validation and saying, hey, not only do we expect you to engage in innovation behavior because it's a core competency of our university, but we also believe in you. We believe in your ideas and we want you to try them and test them. And if you fail, that's great. But what we want you to do is, is really engage in this, in this notion that your ideas can change the world and know that we believe in you in that process. So you have to say those things, but then you have to back it up too. And that's why the 3D printers and the resources that come into play there uh, at the Innovation Studio serve as what we call inspirational capital. So uh, you don't necessarily have to give people money to get them engaged, but you have to incentivize them to get to engage. And that's where the validation goes one step further of saying, we believe in you and we're going to put our money where our mouth is and support you. So the studio provides that, that space, uh, but we do actually have a, a capital component to it that makes us truly unique. Um, and we fund every single team who walks in our door. So as long as they meet three criteria, they have to be an interprofessional team. Mm-hmm. So it can't be just two nurses or two docs. You got to find a nurse and a doc or a, a nurse and a uh, engineer or a music major and a, and a philosophy major. They don't have to be necessarily healthcare clinicians, but they have to have an idea that Im- improves the health and well-being of the world. So it's a, a healthcare or a team of, of people with two disparate backgrounds that want to improve the, the health and well-being of the world. And then we guarantee you that if you show up on pitch day, you'll get at least $250 to $1,500 to get started on your idea. So that's where that inspirational capital becomes a little bit of actual capital as well. Wow. Inspirational capital. That's an amazing mm-hmm. concept. I've never heard that term before. Is that specific to OSU? Because that's totally new to me, that idea. So I, I gave a TED Talk in November. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was working through my my deck with my wife and we were talking about how I can tell this this better, um, she said, well, why don't, why don't you call that inspirational capital? So I can't even take credit for that. That one goes to the amazing Jill Raderstorff. Um, but it, it aligns perfectly <laughs> with where we're at. 
<laughs> That's great. Okay. Yeah. So Jill coined that term. We'll give mm -hmm. her credit for that. And I think that's very important, these concepts of permission, mm -hmm. validation, and inspirational capital. And mm -hmm. we're definitely going to have a link to the Loon Shots book um, yep. in the show notes. It's Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. And it mm -hmm. appears to have come out in March of 2019 by Safi Bakal. Yes. Yeah, Safi Bakal. So we will definitely have a link to that. And Tim, can we put link to the your TED Talk yep. in the show notes? We'll have a link to that. No, was that a TEDx talk like yeah. in your local area? TEDx Columbus, it happened on November uh, 15th, 2019. And that's about the innovation studio as well. But from the, from the premise that we talk about democratizing innovation. So uh, when you think about the hierarchy of, of innovation and invention across the United States, across the world, uh, it's usually done by by guys like you and me, white men of privilege or, or men of mm -hmm. privilege who uh, have been able to find success because of, of the parameters that have occurred within their life, whether prior to them or, or, uh, or where they're living now. So um, we believe in the innovation studio and that's why we fund every team um, is because we believe that the more disparate ideas, the more that we empower the frontline users to be creating the innovations that will change the world, uh, the better our return on investment will be. And we use in turn of investment as a loose term, not just the capital that we're putting in, but the impact of these um, innovations are going to be much, uh, much broader because we are listening to people who have that innate and intimate knowledge of the problem and therefore are the right people to be solving it. So do you feel like this work you're doing at OSU at Ohio State, do you feel like mm -hmm. there's, there's um, a movement to replicate it or is anyone currently replicating it? Because not everyone can come to OSU. So in terms of the democratization, do you feel like there are other people who want to do what you're doing or create something along these lines? There are. We're actually in conversations with uh, three large universities right now to develop what we're calling a franchise model. Um, mm -hmm. And we call it a franchise model because we want people to, to recognize that this is a business opportunity for their organization. And I'll get into that for a second uh, of why that is the case. But it's also e easy for people to understand. So we are currently in talks with uh, higher education, uh, some library systems on the West Coast uh, to develop their uh, develop an innovation studio within their space. And uh, we have a couple set parameters of, of, of what that means to be part of the innovation studio collective. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, would love to talk with, with anyone uh, who's interested in, in bringing an innovation studio model to their organization. Okay. And can those innovation studios pop up in any, any milieu where someone wants to create one? Yeah. So we created it out of a necessity for lack of space. Okay. So although we are one of the largest universities in the world, um, we're very condensed and we don't have a, we have 110,000 people on our campus at any point in time uh, during the work week. So with that um, space is at an ultimate premium and every, you know, th there hadn't been anyone who said, Hey, I have 200 <laughs> square feet for you uh, to come and occupy for, for an extended period of time. So the movable space um, was a great uh, method of necessity for us. We knew that we weren't going to be able to get, um, to get a, a classroom or something in different colleges around campus. So we said, let's just create a space that we can bring wherever we can go. Um, and, you know, right now we're in the oldest building on campus. Um, we, we had to make modifications to the, to the maker space because the, uh, the walls have arches uh, coming through them. So uh, we had to remove some of the panels from our makerspace so that it could fit between the archways. But that's the beauty of it. It's adaptable. We can make it fit pretty much anywhere we need to. Uh, we need one power core or one outlet to make everything run. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a highly adaptable space that can can be put in a box truck and be in a different area of campus in two hours. Amazing. So we have a lot of fun with it. That's great. So that's an exciting thing to think about. And it makes me think about um, tiny houses, like mm -hmm. people build tiny houses and move them around. And that, that really rings true for me in terms of that portability to be able to bring it to people 
and when you want to reach people who might not have the access to those types of technologies, I can picture maker spaces like this being brought into low-income communities where at a library, you know, local kids can come in and learn how to use a 3D printer, you know, and there, that is happening here in Santa Fe at a place called Meow Wolf. Um, there are maker spaces being created in these smaller cities. So it's definitely happening. And I think it's a wonderful development of all of these technologies that we now have fairly ready access to depending on our, like you said, our level of privilege and access. And this democratization sounds really smart. Now, backtracking a couple minutes before we take a break, could you give us a couple examples that have come out of the Innovation Studio? We, we promised that a few minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my favorite story of what's come out of the Innovation Studio was developed by a nurse-led team she was worried about patients overdosing on opioids while they were in the health system. So people who are addicted to opioids would have access through an IV line that we put into their um, we put into their body and, and basically provided a, a free pathway to to their uh, vasculature. So she came up with a way to protect the ports that listed that were in. Um, IVs so that patients wouldn't be able to access the ports within their IV lines. Um, and she's away. This this product is uh, tamper-proof. So if patients do attempt, then we're able to see that and hopefully provide them with the right resources that they need to help with their addiction. And then the organization is then also able to document that these patients are trying to access their lines so that if something happens downstream, unfortunately, that there's an ability to showcase that this is a pattern of behavior um, and that uh, you know, we attempted to get the person the right resources that they needed. I see. And this sounds like it was a very small innovation. It sounds yeah. like it was probably like some sort of plastic, um, made of plastic, most likely, right? Yeah, I can actually send you a link to the show notes. So what, what's truly amazing about this story is not only the impact that she's having on protecting our patients who, who struggle with addiction, um, but she's also been able to develop this almost entirely herself. So she came to the innovation studio to pitch an idea in November of 2017. Mm-hmm. By July of 2018, she had signed an international licensing deal with one of the top distributors of this type of product. And in total, we had spent $240.20 to make it. $240? And 20 cents. I thought you were going to say $240,000. No. no. So <laughs> that's the amazing component of this is that, uh, that when we provide that inspirational capital, mm-hmm. people, people uh, respond to that tenfold with sweat equity. Mm-hmm. And so she would come to the innovation studio two to three times a week. She would develop different prototypes. Um, this is a product that had multiple layers to it. So she developed a rig to bring all those layers of products together so that she could showcase that this would work and would be effective. Um, and then she figured out how to use our laser cutter to develop many different ideas and designs of, of what it should actually look like. Uh, and then she'd go back and, you know, she'd ask nurses for feedback on them. Would this work if we, if we use this with our patients? So she was in, totally ingrained in the process and her passion shone through in that sweat equity. And we were able to capitalize on that to impact our community. And that's one of the key things that I like sharing with nurses is that um, a lot of us have this internal conflict or, or dialogue about, is it wrong to make money off of patients? And in this example where, where this nurse is saving people's lives um, and providing them the, the greatest uh, asset that they can have, and that's more time on this earth. She's done it in a way that can move beyond her health system. So, you know, I like to think of it as a continuum of, uh, if, if you think of it as a, a curve for, or a, a graph for impact, if on your um, your y-axis you have impact, and on your, your x-axis you have your timeline, at, at the very bottom, at the origin where the X and Y meet, that's where nurses tend to hang mm-hmm. out. That's our workaround area where we, you know, we create and we're creative thinkers and we're able to solve the problems for an N of one, but we don't have any real impact. And as you move up that chain and you move it to innovation where you start, um, you start sharing that with your organization, you can have a systems level impact. But if you want to get to the highest level uh, of that quadrant, um, to the upper right area of that quadrant, you have to commercialize. 
And I, I use that word very clearly. You have to commercialize because mm-hmm. there's nothing that is provided to a patient in a health system that's for free. So if you want to have impact, you have to be able to sell whatever your idea is, whether that's a product, a service, a solution. If you can't sell that, then patients can't use it. And that's the unfortunate reality behind it. But that's why we need nurses, particularly all your listeners to this podcast, to start understanding why commercialization is their best pathway forward to impact people beyond their system level. Wow. Okay. That is a lot to digest. And we're going to take a really quick break, Tim. When we come back, I want to ask you to give us your second example of something that's come out of the OSU Innovation Studio. And I want to talk about your DNP process that you're in the thick of right now. And I also want to talk about your books and a few other things about the, um, the how we create a structure of innovation in healthcare and beyond. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 257. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty nifty premiums and gifts directly from yours truly just head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse keith to read all about it that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash nurse keith also please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so that you can receive my bi-weekly message just for you finally if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me please consider referring them And if they become a paying client, even if they do one session, you'll receive credit for one hour of coaching with me and there's no expiration date on that credit and you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. Remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits over time. What a deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's topic. All right. Thanks for hanging out here on the Nurse Keith Show. We are with Tim Raderstorf of the Ohio State University Innovation Studio. This is episode 257 and the show notes, which you're going to want to check out for his TED Talk and lots of other great information about what's happening over there in Ohio at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 257. So Tim, right before the break, you were giving us this amazing example of a monetized product created by a nurse at the OSU Innovation Studio for the cost of $240, and she now has an international license for marketing this particular product. So that is fascinating. So would you like to continue in this particular thread and give us a second example of something that's come out of the Innovation Studio? Sure. Okay. I'll go back to that that same timeline because you know we we initially started this conversation about uh, the seventeen year gap and these are examples uh, of things not taking nearly that long. Uh, I will I will preface that with we do have plenty of projects that are taking much longer than this, mm-hmm. but uh, there are a few that we're able to share because of intellectual uh, property components and things that have actually made it to market. So now that they're making it to market, we can we can share those a little bit more, and that's why we share these that are moving pretty quickly. Um, so uh, one of our one of our students uh, wrote a wonderful children's book, but she came to us uh, in October of of 2017 at that exact same pitch day um, that the first nurse had come to us, and she said, "Listen, I have this idea for a children's book because I think we're pushing the fear of bacteria too far for children, and they're always heard that that bacteria are a bad thing, and um, you know I, I think we need to make sure that people are aware of that." Bacteria are actually life-saving agents, and the ones particularly that are in our body and our uh, our gastrointestinal tract are incredibly important to digestion and health, and I want kids to know about that. So she said, I have an idea for a book. I can't illustrate, uh, but I, I would love it if you could help me find someone who could be an illustrator for us, and I think we can get this thing off the ground and running. 
So she ended up spending just a little under $4,000 over the course of, of uh, a year. She came back and pitched to us uh, four more times to get that capital because that, that's the amazing thing about the innovation studios. Once you get one round of funding, you're invited to come back and keep asking for more rounds as you meet your milestones. So she came back, kept asking for funding, worked with this, this design student to, to illustrate her book. And in August of 2018, so uh, not even nine months later, she was the number one new children's nutrition and dietary book on Amazon. Hmm. Uh, so it's a book called In Your Tummy and a uh, very fascinating process. And the beauty of this is that um, the student is... Uh, one of the most accomplished and, and thoughtful students that we've had. So she outlined the entire process of self-publishing a book. And now we have plenty of other students and faculty from across the university who want to follow her model. And she has been able to provide them with a step-by-step guideline of um, this is who you need to talk to. This is what things will cost. And here's a rough timeline of uh, how long it takes to get the responses that you need to self-publish these books. So, um, incredible woman who, who was able to share her expertise with children through her book and with other people at the innovation studio through her experience. You know, I'm really glad you brought us that example because when I and other people think of innovation, we often think of developing a product mm-hmm. or some new thing mm-hmm. like what you talked about in terms of the IV port access protection, right? The tamper-proof protection. Mm-hmm. So this is a book. She didn't have to use the 3D printer. She didn't have to learn how to use a laser cutter. But what I appreciate about this particular story, this example, is that you saw this as a form of innovation because it wasn't about a product that people were going to like use at the bedside. It's about an educational product, which is in itself disruptive and innovative. So I really like this. And Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that that as these examples roll out and people see what's happening, it's going to spur other innovative ideas, right? It must be this huge community of people talking about all sorts of cool things. Absolutely. People are are finding inspiration from each other throughout. And we're starting to see teams who've now gotten to the end of one project, collaborating and starting their next round of, of, of uh, ideas or innovations with us. And, you know, that, that took time. We're, we're two and a half years into this. So naturally, you know, some ideas are going to succeed, some are going to fail, uh, but they're going to meet great people along the way and figure out who they jive with and who they can create amazing things with. Mm-hmm. But, but to your point there about seeing this as an innovation, you're absolutely right. Uh, we define innovation at the Ohio State University as the process of implementing new products, services, or solutions that create new value. Hmm. So if you're creating new value, that's where we see innovation at play. And some people struggle with this about, you know, quality improvement versus innovation and evidence-based practice versus innovation. But w- when we live in that world of, uh, of creation of new value, there, there is some gray zone between those. And, and innovation purists may, may not appreciate that stance, uh, but mm-hmm. we believe that there's innovation, the noun and innovation, the verb, and you can have innovative approaches to things that may already be founded in evidence or in quality improvement. But if that new value creation occurs, then we, we see that as being a form of innovation. I see. Yeah, I could picture innovation pure as saying a, a new children's book, that, that's not innovative. There's been mm-hmm. children's books for hundreds of years. So I could see where those conversations might get a little heated because people have different definitions of what innovation is. And you have disabused me in a way of that opinion or just that that idea that innovation means like technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those, for a listener out there who has a cool idea, you know, could be a product, could yep. be a clinical intervention, or it could be something as quote unquote simple. And I use that term specifically as a book and because mm-hmm. writing a book isn't necessarily a simple thing. No, it's and, not. Yeah, and, and this is an innovative way to to educate children about something important that could change the way they view their bodies and the and health in general. So yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, in the startup world, Keith, it's called business model innovation. So if you want to oh. do something better than, say, you want to make the best muffins in the world, and you said we're going to be Betty Crocker on that, you're going to have to find a way to either do it faster, better, or cheaper. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you are creating a new widget that, that does those things for you, but you, you innovate on your business model 
in order to be able to maximize profits and, and beat out Betty Crocker, if that if that's what you're looking to do. If we're beating out Betty Crocker, what what comes of that process? When you think of it from the, the business model innovation component, you can bring that to policy and service and all the things that we do within healthcare that may seem um, unique to us, but actually they're, they're Many businesses that are that are founded upon being able to change one policy, uh, and they they capitalize on that. So we do that within healthcare. We just necessarily don't always view it as innovation, but it's very similar to the business model innovation practice that you see in in business and, and in startups. Right, like just thinking of business and innovation and disruption, I'm thinking of that movie called The Founder with Michael Keaton. And mm-hmm. it's about the the founding of McDonald's. And whatever your opinion might be of McDonald's, it was an incredibly disruptive, um, innovative model, business model, you know, and franchises and the sort of the the um, leveling the playing field in terms of how p- a product is created and served to the public around the world and to be exactly the same no matter where it's produced. So that was an innovative idea that changed the restaurant business. Absolutely. But their true value was the, the real estate that they owned, right? So oh, right. That, that's, where the, that's where the key business, the business model innovation came, whereas everyone else was setting up mom and pop shops in their local communities, McDonald's was saying, we're going to take what we think is going to be the top intersection of every city and we're going to buy that. And then we're going to lease that back to the franchise owners and we're going to still own the land. And that's, that's a true business model innovation component that really changed how franchises and, and uh, real t- retail development in, in our country. Right. Interesting. Very. It's all so fascinating. And, you know, speaking of fascinating, I want to focus on you for a couple minutes here. So you're the chief innovation officer at Ohio State University College of Nursing, and you apparently were the first person, man or woman, to hold that title in the United States, right? To hold in a college of nursing, yeah. In a college of in nursing. In a college of nursing, yeah. Which is fantastic because colleges of nursing need to innovate themselves. Absolutely. And we could have a long conversation about the ways in which nursing education needs to change, but that's another podcast. Now, the innovation studio, this makerspace incubator, was founded in 2017. And the work also, it led to you being named the 2018 Early Career Innovator of the Year at Ohio State University. And outside of Ohio, you're the founder of Quality Health Communications and the co-author of a book called Evidence-Based Leadership, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship in Nursing and Healthcare, A Practical Guide for Success. Now, tell us a little bit about Quality Health Communications. What is that? Yeah, so quality health communications was something I developed as I was uh, interviewing for my first job at Ohio State years ago, 2012, actually. So when I alluded earlier to having an example of something taking an incredibly long time, that, that my startup is an example of that. But we've learned a, lot, a ton through that process. And, and what we're doing uh, is making sure that the right information is is provided to the right person at the right time by interfacing with electronic health record and providing a dashboard of all the quality and safety metrics that are time bound to the healthcare leadership team so that they can allocate resources appropriately. So when you come into emergency department, we know with, with chest pain, we know that the evidence-based pathway for you to have success is to get an EKG within 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but frequently your nurse or your tech are three doors down taking care of a stroke patient or a patient with a, with a broken limb. So that's a challenging metric for um, an individual to achieve within 10 minutes of your arrival, but it's not a challenging metric for a team to achieve within mm-hmm. 10 minutes of your arrival. So if that information is shared with the right person who's able to, to deliver that uh, EKG within the 10 minute time frame, then you're going to have better quality of care. And as an organization, we're going to get reimbursed more effectively because we're meeting the quality and safety standards. Uh, so what we do is help organizations identify who those right people are and uh, get that information to them so that they can provide the best care possible for patients. Is this startup working right now? Are you working with various health institutions? Yeah. So for a long time, I tried to do this uh, with my co-founders at Ohio State on our own, and uh, we hadn't been very successful in doing that. So we've partnered with an organization who actually has developed a lot of this 
similar software for a different product line. So we're able to translate some of that software and, and customize this to our, our customer needs. Uh, so we're in talks right now as we speak with uh, two or three different organizations about doing paid pilots. We have done a pilot of this software at Ohio State. And from that feedback that we got, we are able to change. It had a, a significant hardware component to it. Um, and hardware implementations in healthcare are very challenging. So we've pivoted a little bit to just a, a SaaS-based model, a software-as-a-service model that allows us to get into health systems without requiring uh, new hardware to be implemented. I see. Now, is quality health communications, is there a website people can visit to learn more? No, we're in stealth mode right now um, okay. <laughs> as, as we've transitioned from um, the original product line to this new product line where we're currently trying to get to those paid products. So we're, we're spending more time on uh, customer discovery and, and making relationships with, with health systems than uh, getting our, our web pages up and running. If people are interested, they can reach out to me and we can we can help them with that. Okay. So if we have a chief information officer from a healthcare system listening right now or a yeah. CNO or a nurse who's interested, yeah. they can reach out to you and learn more about this particular service or product. Exactly. Right. Okay. Now, speaking of products, let's talk about this book, Evidence-Based Leadership, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship in Nursing and Healthcare, A Practical Guide for Success. It came out in November of 2019. Now, tell me about this book and what the purpose is and who you're actually targeting with this book. This book is, is dedicated or, or, or focused on uh, nursing leadership and healthcare leadership. So we believe that there needs to be a paradigm shift where it comes to how leadership is uh, prevailed within healthcare. And we need to be much more forward thinking and we need to engage in an entrepreneurial mindset. So what we haven't seen in any of the textbooks on the market is this incorporation of an entrepreneurial mindset into a leader. And when you compare that with evidence-based practice, transformational leadership in an entrepreneurial mindset, we believe that those are the leaders who are going to be impacting healthcare for generations to come. So we want to impact nurse leaders, physician leaders, pharmacists, anyone across that healthcare leadership chain and empower them to engage in this entrepreneurial mindset as they engage in, in uh, leading their organization in the future. Wow. So you're mentioning the entrepreneurial mindset. Now, do we want to talk a little bit about the intrapreneurial mindset yeah. and how does that come into play in terms of innovation? Because I've talked about that concept here on the show before. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on intrapreneurship within the healthcare realm? Yeah, so I actually use entrepreneurial mindset as a entrepreneurial practice. So uh, what, what I mean by take, adopting an entrepreneurial mindset is that you don't necessarily have to go out and start your own business, but you can do what he's talking about and be an entrepreneur within your health system. So you take these entrepreneurial principles about following a lean business model canvas or using the lean launchpad methodology as you think about the decisions that you're making to impact your organization, you share information widely with each other. Imagine that in healthcare, if we, if we shared our organizational goals and our outcomes on a regular basis with each other, how much better we could be. And you know, we talked about spending and we understood that what happens when we open up a Pixis and grab three of something and only press the button that we grabbed one, uh, how that impacts the entire system. Uh, these are all things that entrepreneurs think about on a regular basis. And that's the mindset that we want our leaders and our practitioners to be engaging in when they're at the bedside or when they're at the leadership level within their health system. And they do that as entrepreneurs, a person who's acting like an entrepreneur in a large system. Great. Right. And that's generally how I describe entrepreneurship. It's bringing that innovative kind of like, quote unquote, ownership of what you're doing mm -hmm. to the table and acting as if you're a decision maker and you can actually like change things. And I recently did a blog post and a podcast um, late in 2019 about the seven most dangerous words in healthcare, which to me are, but that's the way we've always done it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very dangerous way to think. And I think these entrepreneurial, these people with the entrepreneurial slash intrapreneurial mindset are the ones who say, you know what? Those seven words are meaningless to me. Let's figure out how to do this better. Yeah. So at Ohio State, we have uh, the world-class Hellingfold evidence-based practice program. And um, 
we have uh, been running this for years. The, the co-author of my book, Dr. Bern Melnick, uh, founded this, this center that introduces evidence-based practice to healthcare organizations around the world. So we have an amazing team led by Lynn Gallagher-Ford, uh, who traveled to different health systems and provide a week-long immersion on developing a PICO question and then bringing evidence-based practice into that organization. So but the reason that I bring that up is for years, even before they, they, they used to be called CTAP, um, before they became the fold. And uh, they've always had pins, like you said, that said, because we've always done it that way. And then it oh. has the no smoking X through that. So that that resonates very strongly with us at Ohio State uh, and the amazing team that we have that lead EBP across the world. Wow. And how do we find this particular person's work? So uh, Dr. Bernadette Melnick is the dean of the College of Nursing. So she's written uh, many books on evidence-based practice. Um, I'm looking to see if I have one in front of me right now. And a second edition of um, this book here by uh, Bern Melnick is called Evidence-Based Practice in Nursing and Healthcare, A Guide to Best Practice. Mm. You'll notice a little bit of similarity between that title and the title of the book that we wrote together. Yes. <laughs> um, so the amazing team that I was alluding to is our Helene Fold Health Trust National Institute for Evidence-Based Practice in Nursing and Healthcare. Uh, and this team is phenomenal. They do, as I mentioned, immersions all over the world. And if you go to their web, our webpage for that is just fold.nursing.osu.edu. Okay. We'll have to follow up on that and make sure that I got that right and put that in the show notes because this is all fascinating. And I think these are all things that there, there might be someone out there listening who really needs this information right now. And that's what's so important about these conversations we're having here on the show and elsewhere because this information needs to be distributed because we need people to get inspired, right? Yeah. And, and something that I, not to toot our horn, but I think that makes Ohio State truly unique is that we are world-class leaders in innovation-based practice and world-class leaders in evidence-based practice. And when you combine those two powers together, I think that that's one of the main reasons that we're having such success is because of the work that our EBP team has done to lay that foundation and showcase Ohio State as, as a national powerhouse. That's fantastic, Tim. Now, one last question. Um, tell us about your DNP process. Yeah. What's going on with you in your educational endeavors? So I'm proud to say I finished my DNP in May of 2019. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I was very fortunate to do my evidence-based practice project on the innovation studio. And we actually found a lot of evidence that showcased that people who engage in interprofessional collaboration which is what we require at the studio by having two or more different people from different backgrounds, uh, that, in, that it improves their intent to stay and their job satisfaction. So we implemented the Innovation Studio to see if we'd get similar results. But what's really exciting about this and looking at the literature is that you can see a really clear delineation between interprofessional collaboration and patient outcomes. So when you have interprofessional collaboration, you increase job satisfaction. When you increase clinician job satisfaction, you decrease provider burnout or clinician burnout. And when you decrease clinician burnout, patient outcomes improve. So by engaging in interprofessional collaboration, we're able to say that we're doing the most important thing possible, and that's making our patient experience it better and having better outcomes. So the cool things that come out of the innovation studio are actually just this amazing unintended byproduct of making our patients' worlds better. Uh, and that's why I'm so excited about this work and uh, really enjoyed my EBP experience. I, I did a fully online program at Ohio State, which was, which was exceptional. And for those of you who are listening and considering a DNP program, because it's a fully online program, you get in-state tuition dollars regardless of what state you live in. So there are certain states that you can and cannot enroll in this program because of policy. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you're interested in a DNP program, I, I highly recommend it. It's opened uh, phenomenal doors to me in my career. Excellent plug for Ohio State's DNP program. That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. They pay the mortgage. They pay the mortgage. <laughs> and I know you've got three kids on board, so you've got you've definitely need to be um you need to be a very active um, earner yes. and innovator out there in the world. 
Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, your wife coined that amazing phrase, inspirational capital and all the power to Jill as a mom and a, obviously a highly intelligent person herself. And she's a very accomplished venture capitalist as well. I was just going to ask what Jill does for a living. So she's, she does VC stuff. She does. She invests in Ohio based uh, companies for a company called the Ohio Innovation Fund. Good. Well, maybe someday she'll invest in her husband. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> we'll see Tell how the SEC so. feels about that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her I said she should invest in her husband. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure she has invested in many other much ways. time and love in, yeah. in your relationship. And Tim, you are, I mean, talk about inspirational people. You're amazing. I'm so glad we had you on RNFM radio back in the day. That was quite a few years ago, actually, mm-hmm. probably seven or eight years ago. And you've done a lot since then. And I'm so glad for you to bless the airwaves of the Nurse Keith show with your presence. And I'm also so glad you and I've had the chance to meet in person at the National Nurses and Business Association. And I have to say, you were a very inspirational speaker as well when you presented on innovation. I think that was three, four years ago. I know Keith talks about it frequently, but the NNBA is is a place that uh, if you're interested in innovation entrepreneurship as a nurse, uh, you should definitely be checking them out. One of the places to be. So, you know, Tim, in the, in the cosmology of the Nurse Keith show, in terms of innovation, I've had Bonnie Clipper on the show. I've had Paul Coyne. I've had uh, Joey Kelly recently, who I think you've probably interfaced with by now. So there's there's a lot going on out there and you are now in that pantheon of of incredible nurse innovators and thought leaders who've been on the show and I can't thank you enough. You know, it's truly my pleasure. I love sharing my experience and it's something that I had no idea was uh, even a pathway in nursing when I when I was fortunate enough to to find myself in this profession. So, uh, for those of you who are out there, know that really the limits of this profession are the limits that you put on yourself. If you dream and discover it and deliver, you're going to be amazed at the doors that open to you. All right, mic drop. That's all we have to say. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to episode 257 of the Nurse Keith Show with the amazing Tim Raderstorff of Ohio State University. Remember, those show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 257. Tim and I are going to have to remember a lot of things to add to those show notes. So you're going to want to head over there once the show drops so that you can check it all out. And make sure you go to the resources drop-down menu at nursekeith.com for jobs, for free ACLS and BLS certification, and lots of other things you want to encounter at nursekeith.com. The show is edited and produced by Rob Johnston. And Mark Cappy-Speason is our social media ringmaster who keeps the social wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch, and innovate. This is Nurse Keith signing off from beautiful and chilly Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Tim Raderstorff bidding you adieu from... Beautiful and chilly Columbus, Ohio, I should say today. All right. Well, Tim, thank you. And thank you to those out there listening. And we will catch you all next time.